Tonight, we're going to continue our eight-week series titled, What We Believe. Um, hearing these sermons and affirming belief in the doctrines that they cover is going to be a prerequisite for membership here at Love City Church. Uh, today, we're going to come to the Holy Scriptures, and we're going to examine the doctrine of the Trinity uh, with the hope of understanding better the essence and nature of our perfect and holy God. Said more simply, what we want to do is kind of answer the question, like, what is God like? We want to look at what the Scriptures tell us about God and attempt to see what is it that he's like. What did the scriptures say about his, his essence and nature? Um, before we go through that, before we work through that together, uh, there's two things that need to be said, uh, kind of as a, a groundwork before we start to see what the scriptures have to say. The first of all is that we need to approach this subject with as much humility as possible. Uh, it's very important that we approach this subject even more so than others. We should always come to every subject with humility, every conversation with humility. We should always be humble because Jesus was, right? And Philippians says we can have the same mind he did. So, but this specifically, we need to be really humble as we come to it. Uh, and we should expect that as we contemplate and wrestle with the mystery of the depth of God's nature, that we're going to be humbled even farther. When we get done today, I'm expecting for you to be humbled just because of how incredible God is. Every time you spend time focusing your attention and affection, setting your eyes upon the God of the universe, one of the things that should come out of it every time is a healthy dose of humility because he's so far greater than we are. And so we're going to see some of that tonight as we study the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. can always use more humility. Uh, we are finite creatures with finite minds, and he is eternal, all-powerful, He's all-knowing, and he's ever-present. He's the God and creator of the universe. Uh, some things about him, and some things we'll talk about tonight, are going to be easy to grasp and understand. Some things are going to be really deep. Some things will be difficult. And I want part of being humble and coming to this is being okay with that. There are certain things about God, because of how big he is, because of how incredible he is, because of how much bigger he is than us, there are some things that, we may not totally understand about him, and we have to be okay with that. That's okay, and actually, it should lead us to worship. Augustine, who was a, month in the, a monk in the 4th century, said this. He spent 19 years studying the Trinity, uh, and he wrote perhaps the most enduring work on the subject. He titled it Treaties on the Trinity, um, and he is believed to have said this. Trying to understand the Trinity, and you'll lose your mind. Deny it, you'll lose your soul. What does that mean? It means that it's really important to understand the doctrine of the Trinity because it summarizes what the scriptures say about God's essence and nature. But we cannot pridefully assume that today or any day that we will have all of our questions answered or be able to totally wrap our mind around everything. Okay? Everyone all right with that? Let's plow forward then in God's grace. Uh, the second thing, uh, the first thing is we need to be humble. The second thing is I want to, right off the bat, because you may have heard this before, and it might cause you to be sitting here wrestling with doubt the whole time instead of really humbly examining with us what the scriptures have to say. I want to address a weak but surprisingly common pushback against the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, there are folks that they will drop this line, and they'll think that when they do, they've completely undone the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity by, by saying something to this effect. <clears throat> The word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. Okay, I'm with you on that. However, the word Bible is not in the Bible. So if we use your parameters, chief, we've got to throw all the scriptures away 
And what do we got? We're going to sit around and talk about our opinion, right? I understand that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. However, the word Trinity, we believe, most accurately describes the nature of God. The first widely recognized use and defense of the word Trinity to describe God's essential nature, um, that he is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, was in the beginning of the third century by the early church father, Tertullian. Now, the Trinity and God's nature is probably one of the deepest mysteries in all of the scriptures. And so we're going to have to dig in today and ask for God's help by his Holy Spirit to understand what can be understood about this. I want you to be humble and ready to be left in awe. That's a good thing. That's going to happen too. But we're also going to need God's help not to check out because somebody said Tertullian and I've never heard that name before. Third century, that's so irrelevant. It's 2013. It's so relevant. It's so relevant because what you see in that is that for well over 1,500 years, Christians have believed this, okay? And it's stood and it's not been undermined. Not that there's not been attempts. Um, So Tertullian in the early third century was the first one to kind of use the word Trinity and defend it. Now, some people will use even that as an attempt to attack the doctrine of the Trinity because they'll say the early third century and they're right in this, is a little over 150 years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, right? And so some people will say, well, why the heck did it take so long for this doctrine of the Trinity to develop? And one thing you have to understand about that, uh, and I think that's a fair question and probably one posed by an inquiring mind that really wants to know the truth. We've got no problem with that. Anybody Anybody that's coming asking questions because they really want to know the truth, I will talk with them for hours and answer any of them their questions and I will as much as I can and I will love on them. And, and you guys understand there's a difference, right? You can tell in somebody's tone why they're asking questions. Some people do want to know. They want to know the truth. They don't want to just jump into something because somebody told them so and that's admirable. I think all of us should do that. Some people ask questions because they think the question will somehow undermine the truth. And... Um, that's two different situations. We, we want to be humble and loving when people have real authentic questions uh, and be willing to answer those. So, um, but somebody could say, I mean, that's 150 years. That's a long time. And, and really, it's not until the Council of Nicaea in, in AD 325 when you see a formalization of the Trinity. Um, so why did it take so long? What, you have to, what we have to remember is the cultural landscape, first and second century, the church is under heavy persecution. I'm not talking like Christians are disliked by some people. I'm talking Christians are being murdered simply for being Christians. Christians are being fed to lions simply for being Christians. Church leaders are being targeted by their enemies because they know if they target the leaders, if they can cut the leaders down, if they can murder the leaders, then there'll be nobody to teach. And what they're trying to do is snuff out this radical early movement of Christ followers. And so the the early church leaders couldn't, you know, rent the conference room down at Motel 6 and get together in a big room to hammer out a bunch of essential doctrine and, and send that down the line for the rest of the churches. You see as persecution begin to slow down, 3rd and 4th century, that's exactly what they do. They come together, they start having councils, they start figuring out, not figuring out, but just affirming what it is they've already been teaching. And so you don't see that council happening until 325, partially because... You couldn't run around and say I'm a Christian out loud without getting murdered for it. So we, we see that there's, there's all kinds of uh, reasons why that makes sense. So 
Um, I understand someone's curiosity about that, but there, there is an answer that makes perfect sense of why we didn't see it till then. Uh, the Trinity was not new in 325. That's what I'm saying. Just because that's when the council came together and said, this is what we believe. That's not when they started believing it. It had been believed. Partially because uh, Jesus made it clear as well. Um, so to lay out what we believe about the Trinity, we're going to start with the definition. Um, and again, even this is a, I would say this is a best attempt at a definition, right? Because we're talking about the very essential nature of an eternal omnipotent God. So we all put on our humble caps, but let's do our best here. The Trinity is one God consisting of three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'll read that one more time. The Trinity is one God consisting of three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you haven't already checked out on me, you should be, you should have a question Remember when I said that there was going to be parts of God's essence and nature that were going to be hard to understand? Like, we've already got there. We've already hit that part of the show, right? Because we're talking one God, three persons. My mind's already scrambled eggs, right? So let's do our best to work through this. Um, you know, trying to understand one God consisting of three distinct equal persons, it can kind of leave us like a dog that hears a high-pitched whistle, right? It's like... You know, you kind of get, you can get that look on your face a little bit. It's hard, man. It's not, nothing else really do, do we have to kind of compare it to. How is this possible? How do we best explain this? This is where humility has to cause us to trust the scriptures and admit that some things about God are beyond our mental grasp. And there's two potential responses to this, always. Anytime you encounter something that is is either too big to understand or it, it, it requires the supernatural or a miracle to be true, we always have two possible responses, doubt or worship. You can come to the understanding, you can, you can hear that God somehow is one God, the Bible is clear about that, yet exists in three co-eternal and co-authoritative persons, and you can go, I don't know if that's possible, or you can go, I don't get that, but my God, I'm glad my God's the biggest one and the, and the real one and the one that sits on the throne above every other throne. I'm glad that I know him. I'm glad I'm close to him because of the finished work of Christ. I don't understand it all. I don't get it all, but I'm really grateful. It's two, uh, two, always two possible responses. And it's not, that, it's, it's not that it's never okay for a Christian to ask questions. And I'm not saying instantly if, that if doubt maybe does attempt to creep in that there's something wrong with you. It's... It's absolutely okay to wrestle with difficulties as long as at the end of the day we end with humility and worship. If I think about it all day and I still end up like a dog that hears a high-pitched whistle, like, man, I still don't get it, I worship. I don't go to bed that night thinking, well, maybe God isn't real or maybe the scriptures aren't true just because I don't understand how an infinite God is exactly the way he is. I'm not going to demand of him every answer. Because to do so, I'm really putting myself on his level. God, you have to explain to me everything you know and everything about you. Well, I'm sorry, son. I can't. It's like Lucy coming up to me. Dad, tell me absolutely everything you know. Explain it to me in detail so that I understand right now how to build a house. Okay, we're going to need crayons and paper, you know, and a lot of time. It's, it's not going to happen. She doesn't have, even have the mental capacity, you know, 
her dad's not brilliant by any means, but just because of the years, she's not going to be able to grasp even the basics of what I'm trying to tell her. And the gap between God and us is infinitely larger than the gap between Lucy and I, right? So that makes sense? So Lucy needs to be humble. I'll teach her later, okay? Um, now, many with good intentions have tried to explain the Trinity through analogy, right? Oftentimes what we try to do when things are difficult and we're wrestling with it, we try to come up with an analogy to help us understand it. We're talking about spiritual things like the deep mysteries of God, his very essence and nature. And so sometimes we want to try to take and find like something physical that we can make an analogy out of that makes it easier to understand. There's nothing wrong with doing that. However, you do have to remember that most of the time analogies break down if they're scrutinized deeply enough. And this is uh, no exception. People have said things that, you know, the Trinity's like an egg. You know, it's got a shell, it's got the white, and it's got the yolk, yet it's all an egg. Or it's been said that the Trinity's like water. You know, it can be liquid, ice, or steam, uh, and yet it's the same substance. These analogies, though well-intentioned, they fall way short of explaining the mystery of the Godhead. It doesn't, that doesn't tell me yet how God can be one God yet three. And so I, I, my only problem with it, and you know, some of you right now took the challenge that I didn't give you because you're like, okay, well, those analogies don't work. I'm going to sit here for the rest of the time and I'm going to think of one. You won't. You won't. <laughs> there, there is nothing to compare eternal God to. It's, it's, this is on the other side of total understanding and we've got we to be all right with that. I'm... That's my only problem with trying to fit God into an analogy box and understand the Trinity in that way. It's, it's just, it's not going to work. You're going to come up short somewhere. Um, but the, so that begs the question then, but how can God be one yet three? And here's, here's the answer. And some of you aren't okay with this answer. Some of you won't like that this is my answer. Some of you will not be willing for this to be your answer. I don't know. Some of you aren't okay with that being the answer for anything in your life. And I'm not saying we should just be dumb and stick our head in the sand, never research anything or care and just I don't know to everything, but certain things we need to be okay with I don't know. And again, this I don't know leads, leads me to worship, man. I don't know. I don't know how God can be one God and yet three persons. I, I don't totally understand how God even is eternal, that he never began and he'll never end. I, I, I don't totally grasp that. I believe it's true. And it... It just makes me more in awe of him. It makes me humble, as it should. As it should. I know these are deep things, but it's good for us to think about them. Uh, I don't know, and I'm not going to insist that this mystery be solved. Instead, I'm going to respond in worship, acknowledging yet again how much bigger and more glorious God is than I could ever hope to imagine. Many heresies and errors concerning God's eternal nature have come out of ignoring clear scriptures to try to make God fit in a more easily understandable box. I think many times when people misstep as far as God's nature and his essence, it's not because they want to, it's not because they want to be a heretic. It's not because they want to um, perpetuate a lie. I think most of the time it comes out of a really good intention. They're trying to understand. They want to understand God. And so there's two most common errors as it pertains to the Trinity and God's nature, they're pretty much opposites, but I think most of where these errors have come from was, was good-intentioned people trying to get to the place where we could explain God's essence and nature to people. Um, the first is modalism, 
You don't need to know that. The bottom line is it declares that God is one person who's manifested himself in different ways at different times. So it's not three distinct persons. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but it's, it's God, God, God just kind of showing up as the different members of the Trinity at different times. We don't believe that. Uh, so you can either, that's one extreme. The other error goes to the other side is you can get like a form of polytheism, right? So we're, we're monotheistic. We believe in one God, right? Mono, one. Polytheistic is like many gods, right? Like the Greeks and the Romans and those that had a whole, a whole myriad of gods that they worshipped. You can get to go to the other side and misunderstand the Trinity and see, well, okay, well, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, those are three separate gods and they may work together, but that's a serious problem, right? Because the Bible's very clear. The Lord God, he is one, right? So we gotta deal with that. We gotta deal with the fact that the Bible's clear, cover to cover that God is one, and yet we see all this Trinitarian language, we see these Trinitarian examples. We have to figure out how, how it is those come together, and I believe that the, the doctrine of the Trinity does the best job explaining it, yet it still leaves mystery. But that's okay. That's okay. Uh, the clear, resounding, overwhelming declaration of the Scriptures is that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Uh, we believe that Trinitarian doctrine, though not easy to understand, best summarizes what the Scriptures say about God, okay? Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 1, verse 26. That one should be easy to find, even for the beginners. It's right in the, right in the front. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. So, the first portion, what I wanted to lay out for you, is what we believe. Now we're going to spend some time looking at why it is we believe this. Why do we believe that the doctrine of the Trinity best represents what the scriptures teach about God's nature and essence, okay? Genesis 1.26, we're going to examine uh, three reasons, though there are many more, why we believe in the Trinity. The first reason is that God describes himself in Trinitarian language in the Old Testament. Let's read Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you notice the fifth word? Let us. This is our first glimpse in Trinitarian language where God is referencing himself in plural language. So yet it is still, it is still, hero Israel, Deuteronomy 6, hero Israel, the Lord God, he is one. And yet, who's God talking to? Let us make man in our image. It, it can't be angels. We're not made in the image of angels. And they're not going to have anything to do in the creation process. Who's he talking to? We believe he's talking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the other parts of the Trinity, Okay. Um, you, you see the same exact language in Genesis 11, right? Uh, God floods the earth because pretty much everybody hates him and is hating on each other. Uh, Noah uh, builds the ark, right? And so him and his family come off. It doesn't take very long. Mankind is back to being ignorant, right? So they, they're at um, the place where they're going to build the Tower of Babel. They all get together and they say, you know what we should do? We should build a tower up to the heavens and make a name for ourselves. It's that pride again. You see it. It's that, 
It's that string that weaves through everything. Satan started with Satan and his, his ignorant idea that he was equal to God, deserved the same worship as God. He was cast from heaven, came and tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, and they pridefully decided that what God had for them was not good enough and that they should be equal with him, knowing good and evil. They desired that out of pride. And then here again we see man wanting to make a name for himself, not content to worship the name of the God who made them, not content for their glory and their fame to be found in the glory and fame of their God, to be identified with him. They want their own autonomous identity. They want people to look at them and say, wow, look at this thing you've built. What does God say? He says, let us go down and confuse their language. You see at the Tower of Babel that God comes, he confuses the language of the people, they scatter throughout the globe. Let us go down and confuse their language. Again, you see Trinitarian language from the very beginnings of the scripture. Turn with me to Matthew 28, verse 19. So the first thing, first reason why we believe in the Trinity is that God describes himself in Trinitarian language in the Old Testament. The second reason, as you're turning there, is that Jesus uses Trinitarian language and we see the Trinity at his baptism. So we're going to go to Matthew 28, verse 19. We're going to see Jesus himself speaking here in, in Trinitarian language. Look for it as we read. Part of what I want to do today in showing you, we're going to look at a lot of scriptures, many more than we normally do, because this is important. It's a big deal. And I, I want to make sure we do a good job humbly making a case for why it is that we believe the doctrine of the Trinity best explains God's essence and nature. Okay? Matthew 18, sorry, 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is Jesus, right? Giving the great commission. This, this verse right here is part of the impetus for our mission, right? Because we want to love God. We want to love people. And what do we want to do, Love City? We want to make disciples. That is out of obedience to this scripture. Of all the things that King Jesus could say to his men as he's about to leave them, of the utmost importance, he gives them this command, this call. And he sends them out on this mission. And that is why this makes part of our mission. We, we, we don't need to come up with some new creative mission, vision, blend that's going to shock people and make them want to come be a part of what we're doing because it's something new. We don't need to do something new. We need to do faithfully what God called us to do from the beginning, which is to love him, to love people, and to go and to make disciples. But let's see what Jesus says here. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Why the distinction? Why not just baptize them in the name of the Father or in the name of God in general or in the name of Christ? Here we see Jesus using Trinitarian language to describe himself and to describe who it is we should be baptizing in. Um, don't turn here, but uh, Acts 1, verses 7 and 8, also, this is, this is Jesus speaking. It says, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So we have Jesus speaking, referencing times that the Father has fixed, and then saying that 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So here again, we see Jesus using Trinitarian language, making distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. Still somehow one God, but with three distinct persons. Your mind blown yet? It should be, and it's okay. It's okay. This should lead us to awe. It should lead us to worship. All right? Turn with me to Matthew 3, verse 13. Had you stay in Matthew there so we could get there quickly. Lots of scriptures to look at tonight. But I like scriptures, so that's good. I can't get enough. We're going to look at the baptism of Jesus here, okay? And so as I'm reading this, I want you to be looking for the Trinity in this. See if that's the best way to understand what it is you're reading and the event that's going on. Look for the three distinct and separate persons of the Trinity. So we're in Matthew 3. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to go to verse 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying... I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Can you imagine that? Jesus come and ask, what did Jesus ask you to baptize him? I'd have been disobedient to the end on this one, I think. No, sir, you're doing me. <laughs> you're putting me in the water, right? So John's trying to be humble, but then he's just obedient. He's a little smarter than I am. But Jesus answering said to him, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open. So Jesus comes up out of the water, behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What do we see here? We see three. So now, now this, this would probably be the strongest evidence you would have if you were going to take a single scripture out of context and try to defend a polytheistic view of God, that it's three distinct, different gods, right? Because the, the, the other side just doesn't make sense here. God, God simply being different manifestations at different times, everybody there is seeing all three members of the Trinity there at once, right? You're seeing Jesus being baptized, you're seeing the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, and you're hearing, well, you're not seeing God, but you're hearing the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So all three are there. So it can't just be different manifestations at different times. So you could go to the other side and err and say, well, then it's three, clearly three different gods. That's it. And then, so what you're trying to do oftentimes in the way you can err is try to simplify that. Like, what am I seeing here? I'm seeing Jesus getting baptized. I'm seeing the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and I'm hearing God the Father speak from heaven. That's got to be three different gods, right? But you're working within the parameters of all you've got, which is a finite, cursed, three-pound piece of meat between your ears, okay? And so pride says, well, the only way I can explain, it's your brain. That's what I'm talking about. The piece of meat is your brain, for those of you that look confused by that. If all you have is your mental faculties to work with, like, I don't, how is this one God? But we're seeing three distinct persons. I don't know. So I'll worship him. <laughs> Every time I get to that point in the road where I can't explain it anymore, just stop and say, God, you're awesome, and I'm glad you're bigger than me. Are you glad God's bigger than you? What if all you had the availability and option to pull on was what you have? Your mental ability, your power, your strength. 
If that's all you got, woo, life is sad. I'm about to lay down like Eeyore and just stop it all. I'm done. There is no hope for the future if all I've got is me. And so I'm glad that God exists on a whole higher plane than I do. That he's greater than me and higher than me and way beyond my ability to understand. That makes me worship. It's just another reason to love him, be enamored by him, serve him, give my whole life to him. It's easy to worship a God this big and this magnificent. I love him. So the second reason that we believe that the doctrine of the Trinity best explains God's essence and nature is that Jesus uses Trinitarian language when he's talking, and we see the Trinity very clearly at his baptism. You could, you could try, if all you had was this scripture, to defend a polytheistic view, three separate gods, but that would fly directly in the face of all the harmony of the rest of the scriptures. And that's, we don't, we, d- doctrine is not formed off of one scripture lifted out. Doctrine must be formed out of the entirety of what the scriptures have to say on any given subject. And so you could read just this account of the baptism of Jesus and understand that, that God is three distinct persons. Those must be three different gods. But we have to reconcile that with all the rest of the scriptures that say, the Lord God is one. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is the only way that that happens accurately to understand somehow, yes, it is in essence one God, but somehow there are the three persons of the Trinity. I know I'm running back around the mulberry bush. I'm just telling you, yeah, I, I get it. Like, it, it sounds nonsensical, but, you know, so does grace, really. <laughs> so does the fact that God would save a wretch like you and me. Maybe you were good. So, I mean, some of your problems, some of you were too good. I know how dark I was. I know how hopeless I was. Some of you just... You came out, man, and you're just, you were, you were too sweet. You got to understand, man, we have all been saved from spiritual death. It doesn't matter how few evil works you have in your life that you remember. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have missed the mark of perfection, which is required for relationship with a perfect and holy God. And it is only unmerited grace and favor that's been showered upon us by a loving God that allows us to know him and be in reconciled relationship with him. That doesn't make sense. Go somewhere else and find me grace. Where just for no reason, somebody's going to pour on you favor and mercy and love. Everything else in this world teaches the exact, that's why so many people are wrapped up in a works-based understanding of God. So many people. I don't know how many conversations you get in about the gospel out in your daily life. I'm praying that they get to be more. I'm hoping that you have more opportunities. I'm hoping you start taking them to talk about Jesus and to ask people, hey, what is it that you think determines whether or not you're going to be in relationship with God? What about eternity? What do you think are the factors that go into whether or not your eternity will be spent with God in heaven or the devil in hell? Do you know the number one answer you will still get? Do you know how I know we are doing a poor job of pushing the gospel out here? Because the number one answer I still get every time, every time I ask that question, I can almost, I can almost recite it for you before they speak. You gotta be a good person, man. Well, you gotta, I mean, pretty much, gotta do more, I gotta do more good things than bad things. I, I, I'm probably gonna go to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. How, 
how tragic is that when all the time, all the time, it has nothing to do with that. And it has everything to do with putting faith in the fact that Jesus already took care of all your sin. That you don't have to try to work it off. What a terrible life. To keep trying to stack up enough good works to outdo your bad. Not ever knowing if you've made it. Because you can't see the scale. That's terrible. No wonder people aren't rushing to be a part of God's church and to worship him. They don't understand the amazing nature of the gospel. They still think God's like their boss. Yeah, well, if I work for him, he'll give me good stuff. Well, that's, why would I worship him? I can go worship my boss and get that. But he is different. And if they're going to find that out, it's going to be because you and me tell them. And we're going to get an opportunity to tell them if we live lives that are selfless and full of love for other people, if we live in unity with each other, if we walk out the scriptures daily, if we're willing for our lives not to be about us, but to be about the furthering of this beautiful gospel message, the greatest news that could ever be told, the greatest news that could ever fall upon the ears of any human is this beautiful gospel. You won the lottery. Whoop-a-dee-doo! Compared to the fact that the gospel is true, that Jesus loves me in spite of my sin, that though I was a wretch and an enemy of him, that he came and took me from spiritual death, made me alive. That he loved me and loves me now. Best news I could tell. And it's a privilege to get to do so. So Jesus uses Trinitarian language and we see the Trinity at his baptism. The third reason we believe that the doctrine of the Trinity best describes and helps us to best understand God's nature and essence is that the writers of the New Testament affirm and use Trinitarian language in their writing. Okay, so let's look at a few examples of that. Here's what I'm going to do with this. I don't want you to turn. I'm just going to read uh, some verses to you. And I want you to listen as I'm reading. I want you to listen for the Trinitarian language. See if you can pick up on it. And this is something, part of the reason I'm doing this is I want to train you as you're, as you're, um, ravenously consuming your Bibles every day, which I know all of you are, because you're hungry and desperate for God's word, man. It's like bread. It's, it's, it's the bread of life to you, right? Like you want God's word more than anything else, even more than daily food, right? Amen. Am I in the right room? Are you people desperate for God's revealed word in your life, man? I'm, I need it. I don't have everything all figured out. If you do, come see me. Help me. I'll take the mic off and give it to you. I don't think we do. We need God's word in us daily. And as you're going through that, I want you to see and I want you to understand, pick up on when it is God's revealing himself, as a, 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 when he's revealing his triune nature uh, in the scriptures. Okay, so let's read these verses together, or I'm going to read them to you. You just listen. See if you hear the Trinity in this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Hallelujah. What do you hear there? Distinction. You hear Trinity. That's Peter. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So now Paul's writing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You'll see many times when letters were ended throughout the scriptures that that distinction is made, that God the Father is mentioned, that God the Son and Christ is mentioned, that God the Holy Spirit is mentioned distinctly, and I think it's on purpose to leave little doubt in our minds 
that God is Trinitarian. Jude, in case you don't believe Peter or Paul, Jude chapter 1, 20 and 21 says this, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Here again, we see distinction made. Why? You could save a lot of ink and carpal tunnel syndrome if you're writing scripture, right? And just say, the peace of God, period. But no, the distinction is made. The labor has gone through. And over and over again, those are just three. Time and time again, you'll see it. I want you to look for it. I want you to see it. God is Trinitarian. These and many more scriptures that unmistakably describe our God in Trinitarian language are the reason we believe it to be true. Okay? Now, I told you what we believe. We laid out from definition and went through the scriptures to lay out the reason or to lay out the fact that we believe that the doctrine of the Trinity best describes the God of the universe. Then we spent time looking at scriptures to tell you why it is we believe that. Because I don't want you ever, with me or anybody else, I should not be able to just stand up here and say, this is what I believe and that's what you should believe, period, done, let's go home. You should desire to have the scriptures to be brought out and for someone to explain. If they want you to believe something, if they want you to hang your hat on it, live your life based on it, there should be more than just, that guy seems to know what he's talking about, (laughs) right? You want to see that the scriptures back that up. And so that's why we took the time not only to say that we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, but why it is. And so I gave you three reasons for that. Now what we're going to do is take some time to talk about why does this matter? Because you could be sitting here thinking, um cool, but I'm not sure how this relates to me. It does. The way you think about, the way you understand the very nature of the God that made you will absolutely affect whether or not you worship him correctly. It will affect the way that you relate to other people. Let's think through that. Understand the Trinitarian nature of God is essential for many reasons. Uh, All of those reasons should lead us to humble and passionate worship. We'll cover just a few. Um, misunderstanding God's nature could cause you to misunderstand why he created us to begin with. There are those that erroneously believe the reason why God created us, mankind, initially was because he was so loving that he needed something to love. That God created mankind because, and it, and it I mean, it sounds kind of romantic, a little kind of Elizabethan, you know, oh, God, God needed us and so he made us and then he pours his love into us. Um, God did make us, and he has poured his love into us, but do not misunderstand. God had no need of us whatsoever. God had perfect unity, perfect relationship, perfect fellowship within the Trinity. God could have carried on for eternity in perfect love through through and with the members of the Trinity and been lacking nothing. We did not fill a need that God had. God has no needs. He is total and complete within himself. Why is that important? Well, again... If, if the devil can get you to believe that God needed you, you could, you could start to like pridefully kind of throw that back in God's face, you know? Well, you'd have been pretty lonely without me, God, so I know I ticked you off this week, but get over it, right? God didn't need you. Here again, though, this should lead us to worship because he didn't need us, yet he still made us. He could have had perfect love 
and had no lip back from anybody without us in the picture. Because the Trinity also works in perfect unity with each other. No trouble, no pain. Yet, he saw fit still to create us, knowing how much trouble we'd be. Not because he had need, but he desired us that much. It's amazing. Again, this is how understanding the Trinity properly should bring you to worship. I mean, when you understand that God had no need of you, you know how much trouble you are? <laughs> I know I am. If you didn't like it, I just said that. Spend time in communion, repenting for your pride. Because all of us, every one of our sins, you've got to understand, the perfect heart of God, the perfect very source of love of all, in all of the universe, the heart of God is grieved by sin, is grieved by the pain we cause each other, is grieved by the pain that we feel in, in ourselves because of lies that we believe. You think you're bummed out, your feelings are hurt because of the result of sin and the curse in your life? You think you, think you feel it? Do you understand how much more God's heart is broken over your sin, sin that you commit and sin commit against you? You never mourn alone. God mourns deeply when you mourn. And so the next time the devil tries to convince you you're all by yourself, understand, if nobody else knows, because some of you are good at hiding your pain. Some of you are super good at putting on a mask when people are around. You, some of you are even, you're the life of the party, man. You, you tell jokes better than anybody, but inside you're dying. God knows. He can see past all those masks. And when you get alone and you're broken, he's right there with you, feeling it more intensely than you ever possibly could. And he loves you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. I think that's another reason to worship. I'm thankful that that's true. And so to understand that God is triune in nature is the only way to understand that he had no need of us which should definitely inform how in awe of him we are. Though it is hard to understand, it is the only explanation that takes into account all that the scriptures have to say. The Trinity also shows us a perfect model for loving relationship and unity. Jesus prayed for our unity with each other to mirror the unity between him and the rest of the Trinity. Do you understand that the perfect relationship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have, that there is no strife, no potential for discord among them, that they are all unified completely in mission and vision. There is never, ever a distinction between what it is they're trying to accomplish. Their will is completely and totally unified. It is perfect. This, if you go to if you go to John 17, you see the high priestly prayer. This is the last prayer that Jesus prayed that we have recorded before he is betrayed and goes to be crucified. So the th we see what is on the Savior's mind as he lifts what is burdening him up to the Father in prayer. And the, the thing that hits the top of the list, the thing that he's concerned about as he's about to be murdered and betrayed, he's praying to God that our unity amongst each other would mirror the unity between him and the Father. This is why I am severe about discord and disunity among God's people. 
This is why of all the things that will get me to put my shepherd hat on and get my shepherd cane out and start whipping sheep in the back of the neck, this is the thing because God will not tolerate discord among his people. And the, the, the Trinity gives us the perfect example of unity. So if we look around and we start to feel like we're doing pretty good, like we, we haven't had any drama in three weeks, like we're doing it, Jesus. Look again to the perfection of the unity. That bar is set high. So we never stop striving. We never stop striving to be more humble so that we can work together in more unity for the fulfilling of God's purpose and mission in the earth, which is what we're here to be, do to begin with. It's always selfishness and pride that opens the door to discord. It is always selfishness and pride that gets us to believe the lies of the enemy that my feelings, my agenda, whatever is more important than the, the whole mission that God has called this group of people or any group of people to. God has called Love City Church into existence for the purpose of reconcil reconciling lost people to Jesus. Our vision is to see as many people as possible meet, love, and joyfully worship Jesus. That's what we care about. That's what we're about. Discord and disunity is the quickest and easiest way the devil can stick a stick in our spokes. You know what I mean when I say that? You got to be careful sometimes when you say stuff. Sometimes people don't get the imagery of what you're talking about. And maybe you weren't a mean kid. This goes back to some of you just being too sweet to care about the gospel. I wasn't because I know I was this kid. I see my buddy coming down the street and there's a stick. I, whether I did it or not, I'm thinking, man, it'd be funny if I grabbed that stick and stuck it in his spokes. Because you know what happens? Head over handlebars, dome to pavement. Boom! And maybe you weren't jacked up. Maybe your friend's pain wasn't one of the things that amused you more than anything else. I was that kid. Any confessions in here? Anybody else want to join me and be humble and say, yeah, I was messed up too. Okay. The rest of you guys, I don't know what was going on in your childhood. Um, <clears throat> Y'all had Betty Crocker as a mom or something. But uh, anyways, yeah, you know, the, the, can, can I... Can I can I just tell you something, man? The, the, devil, hates, the devil hates unity because that means people are being humble, and that means people do care about what Jesus cares about more than what they care about. The devil hates that, so he's always going to be coming and trying to sow seeds of discord. James is really clear about it, man. If you read in the book of James, uh, it says that where there is strife, where there is jealousy, where there is envy, there is every evil work. You need to understand that in your life, Allowing bitterness, unforgiveness, strife, or discord anywhere near you, when you allow that because you believe the lies of the devil, you, you essentially throw open the door to every kind of evil and say, come on in. Come on in. Wreck and ravage and do whatever it is you want to do. You need to understand that discord and disunity, bitterness, offense, all of these things have serious spiritual consequences. And so we must always guard against it. And we must get our example of where it is we want to be. This is why understanding God as Trinitarian is so important because we see perfect unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Is it impossible to drive a wedge between them? And that is what Jesus prayed for us. What he wants to see us, where he wants to see us, is so passionate about his mission, is so in love with him and people that nothing could get between us, that offense would have no chance to come in among us. That there would be no way the devil could convince us in pride to be offended because we would be so 
in tune with what it is God was calling us to do and so committed to unity with one another so that that mission could be accomplished, that that would be elevated way higher than what it is I think or feel or think I need. The mission must be of the utmost importance because it came directly from the one who saved us. It came directly from the one who made us. There's no greater agenda, there's no greater project, there's nothing else you could do in this life that could ever compare to being allowed to be a part of the reconciliation of spiritually dead people to the God that makes them alive. Don't you all want to be a part of something bigger than what you are? Don't you all want to be a part of something bigger than just the mundane day-to-day, day-in, day-out, punch the card, go home? Everybody does. And sometimes people give up, man. Sometimes people do it for so long they just become zombies. They don't believe there's anything else. But we get to come with passion and zeal and show people you, my friend, can be a part of the greatest mission that has ever happened in all the world. You can be a part of taking people by the power of God, by the grace of his beautiful spirit, from death to life, from darkness to light. You can share the news with people that they need not be hopeless. You can share the good news with people that they need not continue to try to earn God's love because he's already shown them that he loves them more than anyone else ever will at the cross. This is what we get to do. We get to take people. We get to take their head and turn it away from the things that their eyes are caught on the trappings of this world and the things that don't matter. And we get to redirect their eyes and we get to show them the beauty of the cross. How did a death instrument get beautiful? Why do we say beautiful cross? Is that not morbid? Men were hung and bled to death on that thing. What is it that we like? Why is that the symbol we've chosen to represent what we believe? Because in it is represented the beauty of the fact that you no longer have to earn God's favor. And that was never the plan, that God was going to do it for you. That Jesus was going to come and live the perfect life that you could never, ever live. The life that was required of you, but that you couldn't do. He came to pay the price that no matter how hard you tried, you never could have paid it. You could have never got yourself out of the hole you were in. There's no hope aside from Christ. And it's a pitiful existence to keep jumping for the rim of that hole wishing you could grab the ledge and pull yourself out when you never can. How frustrating that is. Some of you remember it. I still remember it. Some of you still remember what it's like to not understand that there's hope in Christ. I would ask, I would ask that those of you that maybe, as long as you can remember you've known the gospel and you've had faith in Christ, I would ask you to pray, man, spend time this week asking God to reveal to you as much as you can handle the desperation of not understanding the gospel because it would motivate us. We get so wrapped up in us, man. We get so wrapped up in what we've got going on, our own little missions. The devil's successful in distracting us from the one mission that matters, which is living out this beautiful gospel and preaching it every single time we get the chance. You are called to that. Quit letting yourself off the hook. To know the gospel is to be called to share the gospel. There is no way out. And I don't want one. I'm glad to be a part of it. I still can't get over that he let me in. Because I know me. I know how I used to think. I know how I'm still prone 
to sin, thought, word, and deed, to fall short. I still struggle. But he's merciful and he's powerful. And he empowers me by his grace to do better. And I'm really thankful for it. And I'm thankful that I have a perfect example of love and unity in the Trinity. I can look to that, see what it's like for it to be impossible to be separated by offense or schism. There is no discord possible within the triune nature of God. They'll never be separated. That's the way I want to be with you. And that's the way I want you to be with each other. Do you understand? That's, that's what I'm saying. Do you get that? Jesus prayed that we would be in unity as him and the Father are in unity. There is zero potential for the devil to get in between God the Son and God the Father. I'm not an idiot. I realize that we'll probably never get to zero. But by God, we can get closer than we are tomorrow and the next week and the next week. We can love each other more next week than we do right now. We can be more committed to Jesus and his mission next week than we are right now. We can care more about his mission and the sharing of his gospel next week than we do right now. And we can refuse to let offense and discord in among us. We can be wise about it. We can see it coming. We can get to the point where we even begin to recognize in our own hearts and minds when it starts to rise up. You know that feeling. When bitterness comes and it starts to try to grab a hold of you and arrest your thoughts and you begin to dwell on it and it becomes all about that and less about Jesus. We don't have time for that, dear ones. I love you. We don't have time for that. The people out here that need to meet Jesus, they don't have time for that. We've got to push beyond offense, push beyond selfishness. I'm not saying that that doesn't give everybody else a license to not care. That doesn't give everyone else a license to not be sensitive. But we should all care more about each other than we do ourselves. And if we'll do that, the devil will have a lot harder time sticking a stick in our spokes. He'll have a lot harder time slowing us down. Because we got work to do for Jesus. And I'm glad about it. I'm excited about it. It's not a burden to me. I'm just glad to be on the right team. Because Team Jesus wins in the end. I don't know if you've gone to the back of the book. But Team Jesus wins in the end. And I'm just really glad that I'm on his team. Because I see people all around me every day that aren't. And they're on Team Them. How terrible is that? To not know that you've been loved perfectly. To not know that your sins can be forgiven. To not know that no matter how dark the situation is, there's hope in Christ. 